Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, this is the second week of Advent, and uh, this Advent we're doing a series called Christmas Mystery. And what we're doing is we're looking into the mysterious parts of the Christmas story, uh, and there are plenty of them to choose from. This is a, this is a, uh, just a, an incredible story of how uh, Jesus Christ uh, became flesh uh, for us. Uh, but we're, we're exploring these things not in, in an effort to just sort of explain them away, uh, but rather we are looking at the mysteries of Christmas in order to embrace and then experience the beauty of these mysteries. And so last week, we, we looked at the almost uh, comical story of John the Baptist uh, as his birth was announced to his father, Zechariah, who simply asked a follow-up question of the angel and then was uh, struck with a uh, tied tongue and not able to speak. So he was playing charades in his home that entire season. And it's just like, it has almost these comical elements to it, but we explored that story. Uh, and it's really a parallel story to the nativity of Christ is the nativity of John the Baptist. Uh, at least in the Gospel of Luke. And, and what, it, what it does and what we were invited to do last week is we were invited to recognize that God goes before us. And we wanted to just rest in the beauty uh, of that. We wanted to just say that the beauty of God's presence is that he is capable of being fully uh, present right here and right now, fully with us, and yet at the very same time able to go ahead of us and prepare the way. And, and so we, we, my goal was not so much uh, for us to understand that on a cognitive level, level, but that we would really begin to grab a hold of that on a heart level. That on a heart level, we would begin to see uh, the rest and the peace that can come to us knowing that God goes before us. And so today what we want to do is we want to turn our attention to the quintessential mystery of the Christmas story, uh, and that is uh, the virgin birth. Uh, or the virgin conception. And so uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 through 23. Uh, there are Bibles somewhere in your zip code underneath the, in the trays there. You can uh, click if you brought your digital Bibles, uh, and good thing for you, we also brought our digital Bible. It'll be up on the screen. So um, Matthew chapter 1, I want to read verses 18 through 23, and then I want to read uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, a few verses there. I did not tell our audiovisual team about that, and so it will not be up on the screen, uh, but follow along with me as I read these two passages uh, of Scripture. So beginning with Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... Uh, that's the politically correct way of before they had sex. Uh, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So already this is scandalous. So now because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to uh, expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Uh, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from all their sins. Now all of this took place uh, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now uh, I want to look at Luke chapter 1. 
beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and and wondered what kind of greeting might this be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, uh, and uh, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? So she was like, Hey, we have a bit of a problem here. So the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to have been able, unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Um, In 1987, Warner Brothers released a film adaptation of Charles Dickens' novel, Little Dorrit. Uh, If you are a a fan of classic literature, you may be familiar with this story. Uh, And the film is told in two parts, uh, each three hours long, which is probably why it was not a blockbuster film. Uh, This was an investment to watch this thing. Uh, But the story wasn't told in sequence, as in the first film told the first half of the story, and then the second film told the second half. Uh, But rather, each film and each part of the film told the drama as a whole. Uh, But what it does is it tells it from a different perspective. So part one tells the story from the perspective of the hero. While part two is told, it tells the very same uh, drama, but from the perspective of the heroine. Now, because the two, between the two then, what you get is the whole drama, and you get insights uh, into the whole drama from both the male perspective, the perspective of the hero, and the female perspective, the perspective of the heroine. Now, I have done um, plenty of, of uh, marital and premarital counseling in my life, and so I know that there are often uh, the very same thing, but two very different perspectives at play and at work. And this is, in fact, a little bit of what's going on in uh, Matthew and Luke's telling of the Christmas story story. What Luke does, he tells the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. And in the Gospel of Luke, what you get is you get this picture of a very excited young Galilean girl who learns that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And after a simple follow-up kind of practical uh, ground-level question of, hey, how can this be? Because by the way, I'm a virgin. Uh, After that simple follow-up question, uh, the angel lays out all of the details. And what you get a few verses later is uh, a passage of scripture called Mary's Song in which she is celebrating the goodness of God, the presence of God in her life, and the gift of being able to give birth to uh, the Messiah. Matthew then tells the same Christmas story, but tells it from Joseph's perspective, uh, which is actually quite different. So instead of getting a young Galilean girl who's quite excited to give birth to Messiah, uh, you get a rather frustrated fiance, who, uh, rather frustrated guy whose fiance has ended up pregnant. And she said, oh, by the way, don't worry, it's by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, so this is, this is not going well. Uh, for him. This is, these are two very different perspectives of the very same story. Uh, and so, he, so in what we get from, in Matthew is actually a rather troubling account of this young man 
uh, and his fiance who, is, who has ended up pregnant. Well, what's interesting, though, is there is no effort between the Gospels or anywhere else in the Gospels or the biblical account to try to bring these two stories in line with one another. In other words, they are just fully embracing and accepting uh, that there are two different sides of this very same story. They're not trying to bring them in or, or make them comment at all, but there is in fact one common thread between them, and that is that Mary is made pregnant uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this has come to be known as the virgin birth, and it is in, is in fact one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. Now, many have tried to explain this away. Uh, They have tried to say that the virgin birth, the virgin conception can be explained uh, away as simply myth or legend or any other uh, variety of reasons. Maybe Mary wasn't actually a virgin. Maybe something else happened. Uh, There's lots of different theories that were going around uh, early in the early church, certainly right after these events took place, that we're just trying to explain uh, what is actually going on here. Uh, today, we don't try to explain it away as much as we just try to dismiss it as uh, pure myth or legend. In fact, some have said that this is, uh, the, the idea of virgin conception or virgin birth is, an, in fact, an indictment against or an embarrassment against Christianity. Uh, however, I want to say to you today that the virgin conception actually makes theological, if not logical, sense. There are theological ways to begin to grasp a hold of the meaning of this and the significance of the virgin birth. But we need to consider that Jesus is the God-man. That means he is fully God and fully human. And that has been affirmed throughout church history that if we're really going to understand who Jesus is and was, we have to affirm that he was fully divine. And yet we also have to affirm on the other side that he was fully human. So it makes sense then and is in fact logical that he would have one earthly parent as well as one so-called heavenly parent in the Holy Spirit. The virgin conception is also right in line with the witness of Christ in the New Testament. For at his birth, he defies normal means of conception. Uh, During his life and ministry, he defies expectation over and over again by performing miracles, by reaching out to the outsider, uh, by invading the natural with the supernatural. That is a, a common theme in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, at the end of his life, he defies the permanence of death through his resurrection. And so having this virgin birth or this virgin conception is in fact just falls right in line with all the other uh, crazy things about this story of Jesus. And so if we're going to embrace the story of Jesus and embrace his resurrection, then it makes sense to simply embrace his virgin conception as well. We also need to consider then the comparison drawn by the Apostle Paul between Christ and Adam. And I am flying through these because, in fact, this isn't the point that I want to make this morning. But we also need to consider the comparison drawn by the Apostle Paul between Christ and Adam. Adam, the first man, created miraculously and mysteriously by God simply by breathing life into the dust is uh, becomes an archetype for all of man that when he sinned then we were all all who followed after him were born into sin Christ, who is made flesh by the Holy Spirit, becomes a new archetype for humanity, that through his righteousness, then we all might be made righteous as well by faith. And so these two, Adam and Christ, become archetypes for humanity, and their beginnings 
breathing life into the dust of the earth and being uh, made flesh by the Holy Spirit are right in line as well. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, since then through the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through him. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so the point that Paul is trying to make is that through Adam's creation and Christ's incarnation, Both have been made representatives of humanity, and the virgin conception falls right in line with that. And so even while the virgin conception makes some theological sense, it is still very, very mysterious. And this week I was reading a book on the Trinity, which is in fact one of the greatest mysteries of Christianity. And I came across this idea, and I think it's perfect for our study Uh, of Advent. It says this, mystery isn't something you cannot understand. So double negative there. Uh, Mystery isn't something you cannot understand, but rather it is something that you can endlessly understand. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that the mysteries of Christmas are such that the more that you begin to seek to understand them, the more that there is to understand. And so they become bigger than themselves. That These mysteries uh, don't just exist in and of themselves to where we say, oh, we can't really make sense of that. We just simply need to embrace it. But rather, these mysteries become so mysterious that the more we understand them and the more that we seek to understand them, the more that we see there is to understand. Does that make sense? And so they point to something beyond themselves that we can't know simply through logic and evidence. And I said in the first week of our series that probably the the greatest, one of the greatest mistakes that the modern church has made is to, to assume that the only way we can know is through the mind. And any good, those of you who appreciate the arts uh, will know that there are ways of knowing that cannot be grasped simply through logic. Uh, that is, you can look at a painting, and, and God can begin to speak to you. You can begin to know things uh, that you simply could not have known without the beauty of that painting or that music. For, for me, it's not painting or visual art. I can look at a painting, and I'm like, there's a painting. But for me, it's music. Like, uh, music can take me to places and do things in my heart that reading a book that is just trying to teach my head, simply cannot do. And we have made a mistake if we assume that the only way of knowing or experiencing God is simply through our mind and in our logic. There are deeper truths at work here. Uh, some, some would call this mysticism. Some would, call, some would call this mystic. And in case you're afraid of those terms, if you have ever fallen in love, you are a mystic. Because love cannot be known through logic. Uh, love is an experience that cannot be proven through the scientific method, uh, and yet we know it to be true. And so uh, I simply want to point out then uh, that this is, in fact, the case. This mystery of, of the virgin birth, the virgin conceptions, and all these other mysteries of the Christian faith lead us into endless understanding of themselves, but also lead us into uh, things that they point us to realities that we simply cannot know through logic. And in fact, this is, in, this is the case for this beautiful mystery. This mystery of the virgin conception points us to 
something. I want us to consider the activity of God in the beginning of the Christmas narrative. On one hand, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth. They have prayed many years for a child, but all to no avail. And when they have given up hopes, uh, when they have finally given up all their hopes and dreams of having a child because of the silence of God and the, and the age of their bodies, God answers their prayer by giving them John the Baptist. Now, through John the Baptist's birth, God gives them, these two parents, the desire of their heart. And so God is, is meeting a very intimate, specific, personal need for these two parents and answering the desire of their heart for a child. And at the very same time, through the birth of this John the Baptist, God is also meeting a very national need to call people back to God in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so I want us to see the activity of God. God is crashing in on this old couple's life to answer the desire of their hearts, but he's also answering the cry and the call of a nation who for generations have anticipated the coming of the Messiah. That in this one birth, God is doing both of those things. Then we also need to consider that around the very same time, God also totally crashes in on the lives of Mary and Joseph, this young couple engaged to be married. And that he absolutely just comes in and turns their life completely upside down so that you have Mary who is rather excited that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And may it be to me as you have said, like, can you imagine that response from Mary? Now, Mary Uh, We should know uh, that history tells us that Mary was likely between the ages of 12 and 16. I have an eight-year-old daughter. I'm getting very nervous about this story. Like, this story is getting more and more real in my life. Like, hold the phone here, you know? Like, and so she's very, very young, but she displays incredible spiritual maturity. And then you have... Uh, Joseph, and history tells us that he was probably just a little bit older, so maybe 16 to late teens. And, and he is absolutely worried, and he's fretting, and he, he is also, though the scripture tells us, a man of, he's a righteous man, and so he, he, his fiance has shown up pregnant, mysteriously pregnant. Uh, that is cause for divorce in this culture, and so he has in mind to not shame her, but to follow the law and divorce her. And, and here God has to just consistently intervene to say, no, this is okay. I am in this. This is my doing. Like God is absolutely churning the lives of this young couple completely upside down. In both cases, though, in the case of the old couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, in the case of the young couple, Mary and Joseph, what God is doing is God is inviting them to participate in what he is doing in the world. That at the heart of this Christmas story, at the heart of this mystery, is God inviting these two people who were just going about their lives. He's inviting them into something that he is doing and that is larger than themselves. And so I want us to see this morning that at the heart of the Christmas story is an invitation for this old couple and this young couple to participate in what God is up to in the world. And so this this story, we often frame the Christmas story as something that God did. And and on one hand, I want to say that is absolutely 100% true. God did this. God initiated it. God began the movement toward it. 
All of those things are true, but perhaps one of the most beautiful, mysterious things of the gospel story is that God chooses to involve people, this very normal, everyday life, like nothing special about them kind of couple in Mary and Joseph. And then this old couple who had been praying for a child and God says, I can see an opportunity to meet the desire of their heart and to meet the needs of a nation at the very same time. And I am going to do that. Can you see the heart of God in this story? The heart of God is that he is desiring to be active in our lives and in our world in such a way that would bring us delight. God is inviting us into a story of delight. Every picture of God that we have that is sort of the old man upstairs waiting to strike us down with lightning, it just needs to be thrown away. That is not the picture of God in the scriptures. The picture of God in the scriptures is one who delights in our delight. And so he absolutely crashes in on these two couples and he invites them into what he is doing. And then what I want us to see and to understand is that through the ministry of Jesus himself, that invitation to be involved in what God is doing in the world is extended then to all people. That you and I, the people of God, the the church are invited to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That when you go about your When you go into your workplaces, that when you are in relationship with your friends, uh, both of faith and and people who aren't of faith, when you go into your neighborhoods, when when your kids are are riding skateboards and bikes and roller, do people ride rollerblades anymore? Anyway, rollerblades uh, around the the cul-de-sac, like uh, when you are there, when you're just involved in sort of your everyday, seemingly mundane life, at the very same time, God is inviting you into a narrative that is much larger than yourself. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that you and I are invited then to practice the presence of God in the world. My encouragement to you today is to practice the presence of God. Because I think that's part of the beauty of the Christmas story of what, what, what God is up to in this, in this virgin conception. What God is doing, God is inviting someone to be involved in what he simply could have done on his own. And I want us to see that, that God can act 100% autonomously in the world. That's his prerogative. He He can do that. God has permission. But I would say over and over again, and more often than not, God chooses not to act just completely autonomously. But God chooses and invites you and I into what he is doing. He invites us into a greater narrative, a narrative larger than ourselves. So this morning, I want to invite you to practice the presence of God. Now, to bring this home, I want to give us two ways that we can do that. The first way that we can practice the presence of God is I want to encourage you to begin to see the presence of God. Just begin to see the presence of God in the world. The the name Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. I've already mentioned this morning, but I want to mention again that, that one of the main truths that we need to take away from Christmas 
is the radical presence of God in our lives. That even in the moments when, we, when our Bible reading is really dry, right? Like when, the, when your Bible reading plan has you in numbers and your, and your strategy for Bible reading is before bed and you're like, really? Numbers right before bed? God is present. <laughs> during that struggle, during that frustration, during the, uh, the, the, the break in that relationship, God is present. Like one of the main primary questions of our culture in the midst of struggle or national tragedy is where is God? And I think the overwhelming answer that the church needs to provide is that God is right there in the mess and in the mix seeking to make things new. Like that's the business that God is all about. And so, and, and that's, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about God with us. And so if we're ever going to learn to practice the presence of God, we first need to learn to see the presence of God, to have eyes to see the presence of God all around us, to be able to embrace, not just on a cognitive level, level but on a heart level, that God isn't distant. And I think a lot of times the way that our lives function, we would say on one hand, yes, God is near, but the way our lives practice, the way our lives function is that God is actually very distant or that maybe he doesn't care or maybe he's not concerned or, or that my thing isn't big enough or it's not important enough, right? But like the Christmas truth and the Christmas story is God is with us and we need to learn to see that he isn't distant. He is right here. He isn't far off. He is concerned. He is close. That even in the moments when prayer feels like a chore or our Bible reading is dry or, or our, our struggle in life is very, very real, God is present in those moments. That the truth of Emmanuel is absolutely critical for us to understand in those moments. I wonder if we could just as a people of God, learning to see the presence of God in the world, begin to pray this prayer. God, would you open up the veil of heaven? Would you just open up the veil of heaven that we might see you in all of your glory and all of your presence? In fact, Matthew's whole gospel is framed by the theme of God's presence. Did you know that? Matthew's entire gospel is themed with God's presence because his, his gospel begins with this idea, this birth story of God with us, God made flesh. And then do you remember how the, the gospel of Matthew ends? It ends with the Great Commission. But do you know how the Great Commission ends? Surely I am with you even unto the end of the age. And so in the gospel of Matthew, from the very beginning, the birth narrative of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to the sending out of the disciples and the whole church to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of Jesus, it is bookended with the presence of God. God is present in our lives, and we need to be able to see and to understand that. In fact, what Jesus does is he points us to his saving work as kind of a new Joshua. Do you remember the story of Joshua? Joshua is the, the, the Old Testament character who finally had the privilege of leading the people into the promised land. Uh, and so what Jesus does is he sort of points us to his saving work as a new kind of Joshua, that God's presence and action is aimed at rescuing people out of a helpless plight. In other words, we, we can say all day long, God is present. And on one hand, we want to say, hey, yeah, good. 
And then we might want to say, but why? Like, what is God doing in his presence? Like, what is his presence up to? And what this points us to and the gospels point us to is that God's presence and his action is aimed at rescuing a people out of a helpless plight. That he is taking the initiative to do what people find inconceivable. And the pun there is intended. (laughs) And so we need to learn to see the presence of God. Now, secondly, I would encourage us to be the presence of God, right? That if we are to first, if we're going to practice the presence of God, we first need to see the presence of God. But as true, what is so true of the gospel is that the benefits that come to us because of Jesus are never meant for us to just absorb and keep all on our own. What God is always doing is he's saying, I want to bless you so that you can be a blessing. I want to do something in you so that I can do something through you. That we are meant to be a conduit of the presence of God, a conduit of the power of God. And so if we first learn to see the presence of God, then of course God is going to say, now it's your job to go and be the presence of God in the world. That we are to embody God's presence in some small way. From the Sermon on the Mount uh, to his closing instructions to go and make disciples, God is always calling his people to embody God's presence. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is at least in part about. This is what the way of God is all about. And I want you to go and live that way as a way of embodying the presence of God in the world. That's what the whole nation of Israel was about. God is going to call up a nation, raise them up as his own so they might go and be a light to the world of this is what it looks like when God is in charge. That's what the church is to be all about. And so all throughout, God is calling his people to embody the presence of God, his presence in the world. And if we're going to ever to embody God's presence in the world, as I've already said, we first need to learn to see God's presence in the world. And so I wonder if we could do this. I wonder if as the people of God and as a church and as Emmaus Road, could we look for ways, could we look for the ways that God is present in the most unexpected ways and in the most unexpected places? Could we begin to see how God is present in the most unexpected ways and in the most unexpected places? And then, could we learn to see God in the mundane? Could we learn to see God in the miraculous? Could we learn to see God even in the mysterious? And I believe that if we could learn to see God's radical presence with us, then we might be able to, in some small way, begin to embody his presence to those around us. And if we could embody his presence to those around us, maybe it would look something like this. Maybe it would look like embodying the presence and the peace and the grace of God and the compassion of God to the couple who is struggling to have children. Or could it look like the embrace of God to the teenager who is struggling with doubt Or could it look like the presence and friendship of God to a child who doesn't have anyone else to call their friend? Or could it be that we just begin to practice the presence of God and embody the presence of God to the poor, to the voiceless, to the outcast? And maybe even to those who are just like us, You know, it's like the call of the gospel is a radical call. The invitation of the gospel is a radical invitation 
Because it's so easy for us to just get caught up in our just all the responsibilities and the busyness and the workings of life. That first of all, we, we don't even begin to see the presence of God. But man, we're never, if we don't learn to see the presence of God, we're never going to learn to embody the presence of God. And so the invitation of the gospel is actually a radical invitation. First, to begin to see all the ways in which God is present, but then to take the steps toward beginning to embody that presence to the people around us. And so that is my invitation to you today, to practice the presence of God.